All right, let's go ahead and get started. I will, um, I'll pray and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we pause here and just take a moment to, to approach you, um, we just recognize your, your majesty and your glory and how we are unworthy even to, to stand before your presence and, and yet you, you've made a way for us to come to know you through your son Jesus and we're so grateful for that, um, grateful that we get to, to know you through your, your revelation of yourself and your word and um, the truth contained in your word. Pray that as we finish out this study in Acts, that this, this study as a whole and today in particular would, would serve to that end, that we would um, grow to know you more through, through greater knowledge of your word and the, the theological truths and doctrine that, that are explicit in, in your word. Pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, is it hot in here? I'm wearing a sweater. That's my fault. It's, not, it's cold? Okay. You have a bad sense of temperature. I've, that's true. Today we're concluding our theological study of the book of Acts and the, the book we've been going through that's been our guide in the book of Acts, which is called The Mission of the Triune God. And just to start, the, the title of the, conf- the conclusion, Dennis has alerted this to me last week. You probably don't remember. You said it was a confusing title. It is a confusing title. I agree. Um, it's, it's called Renewal Through Retrieval. Renewal Through Retrieval. And hopefully the meaning of that will become clear as we go through this. It's really what Schreiner has in mind here is that all of these theological themes that we've been going through, all of these doctrines that we see in the book of Acts, are, are given to the church in all ages, throughout time. And the reason that they're, they're given to us, given to the church, was for, or is for, the growth, the, the maturity, uh, and what he's calling the, the renewal of the church. So the church will be renewed throughout time, in all ages, in all generations, as they engage or they retrieve the, the theology of the book of Acts. So again, not my personal favorite chapter title, but I think that's what happens when you like alliteration or your, your editor likes alliteration. Now, the, the contents of the chapter, I think, are actually really, really helpful and very good. And, and the, what, what he's trying to do is just get, to get very practical of how these truths, how these doctrines that are present, that are emphasized in the book of Acts, how those doctrines are worked out in the Christian life, how they practically can be applied to the Christian life and the church. So hopefully the goal is by the end of the lesson, end of the chapter, we'll see a little bit of an answer to the really, really important question, the, the so what question. Right? In other words, what do all of these biblical theological themes actually mean for my life? What, what, what's the point of, of learning these things? Which is a really important question. Of course, my, my first answer to that is 
the, the, the biggest reason to have a greater understanding of the book of Acts and the theology contained in the book of Acts is so that we can have a greater understanding of God's word, which is in and, in and of itself extremely practical, even if it may not feel that way all the time. But there's really nothing greater, I think, in this life than knowing God's word better, knowing the theological truths that, that spring forth from God's word better. And that's because by knowing God's word better, we know God better. It's not really hard logic to follow there, right? Knowing God's word better, we then know God better, which is our ultimate aim in this life. It's what we're created for. So really, can there be anything more practical than, than doing what, you are, what we are created for? But I do understand the need for more practical applications of these kind of bigger, not bigger, but just maybe more intellectual theological themes that we have been going through, especially in our daily lives as, as Christians. What, what, just, just good questions to ask. How does this doctrine, how does this truth change how I live? How does it change how I live in my day-to-day life? And so the goal of the chapter is to sort of chart out those practical application points. And if you read the chapter, I'm going to uh, give, a lot, not a lot more, but I'm going to give different application than Schreiner because I have different ideas. Some of his ideas are good, I think, um, but you're, you, um, you're with me. So, um, But first, let's just think about what we've seen thus far in the, the book of Acts or in the, in the book that, that Schreiner has argued. Right? He's argued that Acts has consisted of and primarily emphasizes the, the mission of the triune God. Emphasizes the mission of the triune God in history, in actual history. And so we see the Father's eternal plan to save a people for himself, both elect Israel and, and elect Gentiles into one new covenant community, which is called the church. And this occurs through the sending of his son. God the son came, died, was, was risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the Father's right hand in exaltation. And he's the Lord of all. And then they, they both sent or poured out the Spirit who in, in dwells the people of God, formed the new covenant community, who now goes out, that is the, the church, goes out and proclaims the word of God and the, the message of salvation through their witness of Jesus' resurrection and his offer of, of eternal life. And this witness, this, this gospel proclamation, it goes to the ends of the earth. It's, it's, in other words, it's, it's for all people. It's for all people. And so that is basically his, his argument that has been this. These are the theological themes that we see present as we read the narrative of Acts. And I've probably said this way too much, but all of these themes, this is really important, so I keep saying it, are organic from the text. I hope, I hope we've seen that. I hope that's been proven over this. This is, this is not something imposed upon the text. 
from the outside, but these are coming, drawing forth from the text of Acts, and they're, they're all logically consistent with one another. They're, they're logically dependent on one another. So we can say in that way, it's a theological system that we see revealed for us in Acts. And so that's, that's what we've seen so far. That's what we've seen and chronicled in the book. And again, what Schreiner's doing in this chapter is going to back to an idea that he introduced in the introduction of the book. So if you remember back there, or, or back to the Sunday School lessons, which I know all of you do completely, one of the points he was making is that Acts has two purposes or, or two functions. He argues it functions in the, the, in the Bible as a transitional book, and it functions as a programmatic book. So that's his language of a transitional book and a programmatic book. And by transitional, he, mean, he means that in Acts we see the historical account of the ascension of the Lord and the birth of the, the New Testament church. And so it's a transition between, between two ages, between two covenants, between two testaments. It's a transition in salvation history that we see for us, recorded for us in Scripture. So in that way, it, it functions as a transitional book to record the history of this transition. And it's a, it's a unique account of this history, and, and the time period is, is really utterly unique in, in history. So in that way, it's a transitional book. But he also argues it's a programmatic book. And by that, Schreiner means that it has something to teach every generation of Christians, has something to teach every generation of the church. It's a program for the church. It was a given as a model for the church in all ages so that the church would be, be renewed. Or you could more simply just think so that the church will, will grow, will grow in maturity. And one of the ways that Schreiner proves this in, in the conclusion is by going specifically to the final verses of Acts and showing how Luke recounts Paul's time spent in Rome. So, so two years, and he recounts his, his hospitality, how he welcomed all people. He recounts his message, right? Paul's message, proclaiming the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And Schreiner's point here, which, which is an interesting one, is that by ending this way, Luke is emphasizing how the account and narrative acts isn't really about Paul, but about, it's about God's work in the world, which I think makes sense of the whole of Acts as, as we've gone through it. Right? Acts is about the, the proclamation of the gospel message to the ends of the earth. So while, yes, there's a focus at the end of Acts on Paul, just like there was a focus on Peter and the other apostles in the beginning, and, and Paul's proclamation of the kingdom, what we see is that the kingdom and gospel proclamation is what is going forth. This is what is going forth that is being unhindered. It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's the proclamation of the word. And I think the implication here is that God's word is going to accomplish what it's going to accomplish. Even after Paul's gone, that the gospel will be proclaimed. So in Paul's situation, not even imprisonment in Rome is going to hinder God saving his people. And so in this way, we see the ending of Acts is 
victorious. It's victorious as the kingdom will advance without hindrance. As the gospel is being proclaimed faithfully, the kingdom will advance as more sinners are saved. And Schreiner also makes the point that, that the ending gives an invitation to the church throughout all ages who are reading Acts of, of continuing this narrative of, of kingdom advancement through gospel proclamation. Kingdom advancement through gospel proclamation. And so then the function of the, the last verses is to encourage the church in all ages to press on in that mission, to press on in the mission that has been given to us by our Lord, and that that mission will not fail to be completed. Schreiner writes, the last two sentences of Acts indicate it is an encouragement to press on in the mission. The triune God is doing a work in the world that the powers of darkness marvel at, and the world will both oppose and be astonished at. Though there will be setbacks, though all might seem dark, though it might seem as if God's people are always in the valley, a light shines through the gloom. God's purposes will not be stopped. They will not be stopped because God himself has pledged himself to this work. He has put his name behind it. And it's this type of victorious reading of the end of Acts that, that Schreiner then kind of uses as one of the reasons or grounds his argument that acts as a programmatic book. Because it, it, it's meant to encourage the church on the mission of gospel proclamation to all people throughout all time. To, to press on in the mission that has been given to us. And so the, the narrative of Acts doesn't actually finish. I mean, it does finish. The book ends. But in reality... Um, it continues with the life of the church in this age. So long as the gospel is being proclaimed to the ends of the earth, more sinners are repenting, coming into the covenant family of God, that the narrative continues through gospel proclamation. And thus, Acts and the theology we've been covering in Acts provides groundwork or a foundation for the, the renewal, the encouragement that the church is going to need in that mission, including us today in, in the modern church. So it's a long way of getting to, to how he's getting this idea of renewal through retrieval. It's where it's coming from. As we retrieve the theology of Acts, the church, Christians in general, will be renewed, will be empowered to advance the mission that has been entrusted to us by our Lord. So then the, the rest of the chapter is going to go through each of the seven themes that we tracked, that we were tracing, um, that, that, that Shriners argues are most prominent in the book of Acts. And he seeks to apply or show how the church can be encouraged, renewed, or grow um, by, by focusing, by retrieving on those theological Themes. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time. But I'll pause here for any questions, comments. All right, so the, the first thing I want to say about the themes, the seven themes that are prominent in the book of Acts, is that 
As you may have noticed from the title of the book and the first three chapters of the book were the first three lessons of this, of this study is that they all deal with, with what? The Trinity. It's in the, the title of the book, right? The Mission of the Triune God. The Trinity, the Triune God is the focus of the first three chapters. And that's really important to, I think, for us to pause and think about because the Trinity is really fundamental. It's a fundamental belief for, for all Christians throughout all ages. The core foundational belief of Christians that we have confessed as long as we have existed is that our God is, is one God in three persons. And that truth, that doctrine, is is known as kind of the foundation then for all of our theology, for all of our, our doctrine. So it shouldn't surprise us, and I would say we should actually kind of expect to see the Trinity as the foundation of all of the theology then we find in the book of Acts. And it very much is. Schreiner makes the helpful point that, that all Christian doctrine flows from, through, and to the reality of God, and, and that God is triune. And therefore, any reading of Acts that neglects a, a Trinitarian reading neglects actually a Christian reading of the book of Acts. I think that that's, that's really accurate and important. But then, then again, this is the, the great so what question. What does that matter to me? You could be asking. How does this apply practically to the lives of Christians and to the church? Well, the first thing is what I kind of already said. As Christians, we have an obligation to read Scripture in truth and, and how it is revealed to us. We want to have the most accurate understanding of God's Word that we can in this age. Meaning, a necessary part of the Christian life is to understand texts in Scripture and the whole Bible better. That, that is a, a goal that every Christian should have. And one way to know text in the Bible better is to read with the right presuppositions, to read with the right foundational doctrines. And the Trinity being a really key one, a massively important one, that, that if God is triune and He's the ultimate author of the Bible, then we should expect to read the Bible through that lens that the triune God is revealing Himself to us in Scripture. Thus, we should find the Trinity in Scripture. We should find the triune God in Scripture. And more practically, maybe not more practically, but also practically as we think of Acts and the Trinity in Acts, Acts helps us consistently defend and define what Schreiner calls Trinitarian parameters. We could say Trinitarian guidelines, which is very, those things are very important. It's just a fancy way of saying how Christians speak about the reality of the Trinity in our own finite human language. So as you may know this, this is not an easy task to, to speak on the reality of the triune God. It's been uh, the task of theologians through, throughout the ages in the church Still theologians are, are processing this and, and thinking through these things. They will forever. 
I actually think Blake has been doing a, a great example for us, uh, doing a great job in our, in our sermon series through John, because he's doing just this. He's carefully showing and teaching us how John convey, conveys truth about the, the essence, we could say the essence and the mission of the Trinity in the, the text of Scripture itself, right? Blake has been drawing this out for us as we've, as we've gone through John. Have you all noticed this? Yes, yes, good. The same thing is occurring in Acts. So uh, uh, a theology of Acts helps us make the, the Father, Son, and Spirit central in our understanding and it confirms what the church has ex- historically said or, or historically has confessed as the main distinctions between the persons of the Trinity. Trinity. So the main distinctions between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, which is called, fancy term, eternal, their eternal relations of origin. So in Acts, we see the Father plan the, the Son is the one who is, is sent, and the Spirit proceeds for he, he, He's given, poured out from the Father and the Son. That's what we see in Acts itself. That's what we see in the narrative of Acts, which we call the, the mission of the Trinity, the mission of salvation in actual human history. This is how the mission worked out. But it sheds light on what is known as the, the essence of the Trinity, of what distinguishes the persons of the, the Trinity, which historically Christians confess that God the Father is the unbegotten one. God the Son is eternally generated or, or eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit spirates or the Spirit proceeds from the, the Father and the Son. So that's, that's typically just that's orthodox Trinitarianism. It's not simple, but... Simply put, that is what Orthodox Trinitarianism is. And here's the big idea. That way of speaking about the reality of the Trinity is consistent with what we find on the pages of Acts. As we see the mission of God unfold in history, as it was given to us in in writing. So you might not think that's really practical, but it's really practical because it helps us speak rightly about God, which, again, few things more important are practical than than speaking rightly about our Maker, speaking rightly and truly about God and His Trinity. And it helps, and His triunity, and it helps us then, this is, I, I think, also really beneficial, it helps us trust that these distinctions that theologians have, have made and that we have confessed as the church, they're not some arbitrary thing made up by systematic theologians for the purpose of maybe having like a f- philosophically coherent system that, that makes sense in, to the world. Like that's not the purpose. That's not, the, that's not where our hope is found when we confess these things. No, these categories spring forth from the scriptures. That, that's extremely important because we are, submit ourselves to the scriptures um, alone. And that includes the book of Acts. So let's think of the, the, the first theme that we looked at, um, which is that God the Father orchestrates and plans all things. God the Father orchestrates and plans all things in Acts. And I argued that 
In, in theological studies of Acts, the father is generally neglected or just not, not emphasized a whole lot. There's the, the spirit gets a lot of um, run in academic circles of, in, in, in studies on Acts, which we, we've talked about the reasons for that. But what we actually saw, what we see if we read Acts, is that the Father is central to everything because He plans all things and He orchestrates everything that occurs in history. So therefore, everything that occurs in Acts. He's the central key character, not just in Acts, but in all of the Scriptures. And the doctrine of God, it's also sometimes referred to as, as theology proper, maybe you've heard that, is, is a paramount doctrine that contains paramount theological truths that we need that are necessary for our spiritual health and for our maturity as Christians. So meditating on, thinking on, what we learn about the doctrine of God from the book of Acts is very important. And, and sadly, in, in modern evangelicalism, the doctrine of God has fallen on, you could say, maybe hard times, sometimes viewed as a, a speculative theology, too influenced by, by non-biblical philosophical categories, which may be true in, in some cases. Um, but what has happened in the modern church is that, that two of the key themes that we see about God the Father in Acts, His sovereignty and His immutability, they're, they're, they're de-emphasized by some in the church and even denied by others. So God's sovereignty and His immutability... But I think, without these two key doctrines, without our understanding of them, the book of Acts, and I would say maybe actually the entire Bible itself, doesn't make sense. Reality doesn't make sense without these two doctrines. So let's just think about these two. God's sovereignty means simply that, that He controls all things. He is in control of all things. And how that works out in Acts is that everything occurs, that everything that occurs in the narrative is again from the Father's plan and from his decreeing, from his orchestration. He directs, he guides all things. And probably most importantly in Acts, he fulfills all of his promises. He fulfills all of his promises. And this is made clear with the many uses of the word or idea of God's plan in Acts. God does indeed have a plan, and that plan is assuredly going to take place because He's literally in control of everything. So it could not take place. There's some massive implications of this doctrine for the church. Most obvious to the book of Acts is that God and God alone is the one who propels the growth of his church. That has big, big implications for how we think about church growth and, and numbers and, and baptism numbers. All this stuff denominations seem to be very, very obsessed with. Um, right? We see God saves whom he saves when, when he wants to save them. God grows a church and his church numerically adding numbers to the church in his own so sovereign power, in his own plan. So it doesn't mean numbers are useless, they're really helpful for information gathering, but it does mean it's, I would say, silly to put a huge emphasis on something like the amount of baptism that a church performs in a year, when it is only through right, God's sovereign purposes 
and plan to, to save th that, that individuals then are, are, are baptized or the church grows numerically. God's sovereignty also has direct implications for how we think about suffering when we think about acts. So suffering is a huge theme in Acts, as, as we read it. The apostles went through a whole lot of suffering. They went through a whole lot of outward or uh, blatant persecution because of their confession of Christ. And guess what? It was all part of God's plan. It was all part of God's sovereign plan. What that means for us as the church in all ages is that God is present in our sufferings. He is willing these events for our actual good. And for the Christian, then, the, there is nothing that occurs in our lives, not, not persecution, not suffering, not even death, nothing that isn't handed to us by our Father, that isn't given to us by God, and He promises to be with us, just like He was with the apostles and all the suffering and persecution they faced in, in Acts. Right? You see how that provides, how practical that is for the Christian life to give us strength to endure in this age as we face the various trials and, and sufferings that we face. God's sovereignty is an immensely practical doctrine for, for the Christian, and we see it on display for us in Acts. The next doctrine uh, is, is God's immutability, or the immutability of God. Immutability, I'm going to say it right one day. Immutability simply means that God does not change. He is the unchanging one. And an implication of this truth that, that theologians confess is that because God is unchanging, then he is also perfect in every way. He has no need to change because he is perfect. And how we see this in Acts is God is, again, faithful to all of His promises, which then functions to give us, the church throughout history, encouragement that God has not forsaken us, He has not left us, He is faithful to His promises. And He can't forsake us because He can't change, and He therefore can't break His word, His promises to us. As Schreiner puts it, God does not evolve. He does not progress from one moment to the next. He doesn't develop. He is all that He is. So therefore, if God has made promises about a Messiah and the people of God's future because of the sending of that Messiah, then these promises must come to pass. Because God does not change. Schreiner says, God fulfills His promises because He is the perfect being in whom there is no shift or variation. Again, another doctrine that comes from reading the, of Acts and leads to, I would say, extreme comfort for the Christian. Just think of the assurance, the, the truth of God's immutability, of His unchangingness, in regards to, the, to, the, to His faithfulness, to His promises that, he, that He's given to the church that he's given to Christians. So one I just thought of while, while writing this, Philippians 1.6, that he's faithful to bring completion to the work he started in you 
He's faithful to do that on the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise to believers, to Christians. Meaning he will not let you go. He will hold on to you. He will hold all of us in Christ until the end, until the day of Christ. He will bring us to completion. We can have 100% assurity of this because God is immutable, because He doesn't change. He can't change. He will always fulfill what He promises. So when doubt of salvation comes or, or moments of despair in this life, which are bound to come to, to even believers, we can be reminded of the reality that, that what we see in Acts about God's faithfulness to His own promises, about His faithfulness to His Word, and how He fulfilled everything to Israel, right? Acts is a, like a, you can think of it, it's a lot more than this, but it's evidence of God's faithfulness to all the promises made in the Old Testament. He's fulfilling all of those things through Messiah Jesus, through His death, resurrection, and ascension, and the sending of the Spirit. All of that is ammunition for the Christian to know that God is faithful. He's going to then, we know we've seen Him done it, and we, see him, we, we have seen Him do it in the past. He's going to deliver us in the future, because Why? Simply because he said so. All right, I'll pause here. Any comments, questions? We're only through one theme. I think that was the one that goes... The other ones can go back quicker. They will. All right, let's think about the doctrine of Christ and Acts. And just because they're going to go by quicker doesn't mean they're just less important. I just wrote this poorly spaced, probably. Um, so, doctrine of Christ. What we saw emphasized in Acts regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ is the Son of God, or, or Christ is the Son of God, and is that Christ is exalted in Acts through His ascension into heaven. That's the big emphasis that we see in Acts. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's ruling all things on earth as the exalted Lord of all. He's the Lord of everything. That's made abundantly clear in, in these pages. Schreiner points out how evangelicals have tended in recent generations to focus on the work of Christ that may have been most controversial in, in our times, which makes sense because that's the, the issues that we're dealing with. So two areas then that evangelicals that have kind of emphasized more than other areas is Christ's death with kind of the debates around penal substitutionary atonement, which don't get me wrong, these debates need to happen. They're really important. Um, and also another big emphasis is on Jesus' future return with all of the debates about kind of end times, um, millennium, uh, you know, all of that bag, all you're aware of. Debates about the millennium. Those two kind of controversies in the evangelical world have led some Christians, and again, this is not an indictment on Christians, this is just kind of what naturally happens. It's led us to, to focus on those two areas because there has been um, disagreement there. But one thing an emphasis in Acts will help us with and can do for the church is balance that emphasis of Christ's work, not to de-emphasize Christ's death on the cross or his future return. We don't want to do that, but we do want to also elevate, emphasize his resurrection and ascension. Because that's what, what is 
I'd say primarily focused on in Acts. And what we saw is that the exaltation of Jesus is actually the culmination, the, the climax of Christ's work. Meaning without the resurrection and without the ascension, Jesus' death on the cross was ultimately would have been meaningless because it wouldn't have accomplished anything. It wouldn't have accomplished forgiveness of sins. It wouldn't have accomplished um, justification. It wouldn't accomplish our, our righteousness. Also, what we see in the exaltation of Christ and the narrative of Acts of the exalted Christ is that he continues to work. He continues to work in the present, in this age, through and for his people, the church. He continues to work for the building up of his church and the growth of his kingdom through gospel proclamation. We see that clearly in, in the book of Acts. Another way to say that in simple terms is that Christ is right now alive and Christ is right now working. And he directs and he acts from his, in heaven. Of course, we see this truth of Jesus being Lord of all, reigning over all. This is held in tension in the narrative with the reality that his people, the church, Christians, are still sojourners and aliens in, in this earth. And so that's why we see all this massive persecution of, of Christians. We live in a place that isn't our ultimate destination, and we, just like the apostle, faced many persecutions and sufferings of living in this age of sin. When I say just like the apostles, they were persecuted a lot more than us. But I'm saying we live in the same age where such a reality could exist. But remembering Christ's exaltation and victory over death and, and rule and reign over all things and, and the reality that Jesus is presently working for the good of his people and, and is victorious over the, the devil and the world and sin, all of that is really practical for the Christian. Because it gives us, I would say, it gives us great confidence today. We can have present hope as we look to and long for the, the sure future inheritance of the kingdom of God fully consummated on this earth. We can look with confident hope at that day because that will happen. Jesus' ascension assures us of this because this world, this age will come to an end and it's going to be absolutely glorious for those in Christ when it does. Shriner quotes John Calvin here. It's a really brilliant quote. This is the church. This is Calvin. The church is not promised it will lead a joyous and peaceful life, have rich possessions, be safe from all harm. No, our happiness belongs to the heavenly life. Our happiness belongs to the heavenly life. I think that's a, a great phrase. And remembering the exaltation of Christ, how he's ascended, and, and is exalted above all, helps us keep our focus then there, in heaven. Our, the, the heavenly life that awaits us, where, where our bliss, joy, happiness is found. So though, yes, we face suffering in this age, even, even in our context, right, we may be living in a time in an age where persecution for Christians is growing in this country. That, that very well may be possible. But if we look to Acts... And the ascended Jesus, our response to the growing hostility Christians are facing 
in this country and, and kind of you could even make arguments of religious freedom being taken away. All of that, all of those things can be true, but our responses to all that, all those very real threats, then is not one of despair. It's not a response of hopelessness. Because through Jesus' ascension, he has won. The, the, the battle's over. No matter what, how that works practically for us, then no matter what the Supreme Court does or what the, the president decides to do or the Congress decides to do, the church is ultimately going to win. And so then we can have full assurance that, that nothing that occurs to us will separate us from the love of Christ. We can be assured that we will spend eternity with that, the, the, the king that is presently reigning, the king that is presently ruling over everything. Right? The earth is his footstool, meaning he's in full control of everything that is occurring. So again, you see how practical that truth is, is for us in, in the Christian life. Okay, we're, we're really going to pick up the pace on the last five themes. <laughs> but next we looked at the Spirit's work in Acts. Again, in, in recent generations in the church, the Spirit has been a rather contentious doctrine, especially with the rise of kind of Pentecostal and the charismatic movement in, in America. And it has led to much confusion over the Spirit and His role in this age. Some non-charismatic Christians may have overcorrected to almost neglect the doctrine of the Spirit with the fear of sounding like a charismatic. Um, I've definitely seen that, that occur. But any faithful reading of Acts will not allow us to ignore the Spirit and the Spirit's power and, and role in, in this age. He is active. <coughs> And what we saw as we, as we studied Acts is that the Spirit applies the work of salvation to believers. He, he establishes the church. He empowers Christians for mission. He propels kind of the gospel proclamation going forth. So what Schreiner says in the book, which is, is uh, kind of a not-so-subtle shot at the charismatic movement, is that the Spirit is not a second blessing in Acts. The Spirit is actually the blessing that Christ secures. The blessing that Christ secures. So what's clear in Acts is that the power of the Spirit is present. It can't be stopped. He can't be, he can't be taken away from Christians. And Schreiner highlights one area in the book of, of renewal that an emphasis uh, of retrieval on the doctrine of spirit from Acts can give the church. And that is the spirit compels boldness in speaking of Jesus. Boldness specifically kind of in our, in our gospel proclamation, evangelism, witnessing. So we see account after account of the apostles, right? The text will tell us they're empowered by the spirit and they get confidence or boldness and then they proclaim the gospel even in like terrible, terrible circumstances. So in situations that would have been very, very difficult. Think of Stephen in, in Acts 7, right before the, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Jewish council that was going to kill him. Only by the Spirit's power would cause 
boldness like that, to proclaim the truth, proclaim the gospel, even knowing severe, life-threatening consequences were going to happen. Right? That, that same power, we have access to it through the person of the Spirit. This has obvious implications for us in our Christian walk. Right? We can be confident that in our prayers, that, that we ask to the, when we ask the Spirit to act and to move and to work in our lives, that one of the primary we, we, ways we know that this, this prayer is answered will be in our confidence, in our boldness, in our gospel proclamation. And so I think we should, that should be a theme of our prayers as we think about Acts, that we should ask for, for similar spirit-empowered boldness in our actions, in our, in our interactions with non-believers that we, that we encounter in this life. The, the fourth theme we looked at was the, the progress and spread of the Word of God. I'll pause here. Anyone want to say anything? No one's talked. Good. Well, not good. You can talk. But Fourth theme we looked at was the progress of the Word of God, the spread of the Word of God. And just a, a historic comment that I'm pretty confident I can back up if you don't agree. Um, but Schreiner alludes to this, any renewal or widespread growth, you could call it a revival, anything like that that occurs in history is always accompanied by a return to God's word and accompanied or, or a return to God's faithful or, or with our faithful teaching of the gospel found in God's word. So any growth in the Christian life and any widespread growth is always tied to a faithfulness to the Scriptures, a faithfulness to teach what the Scriptures teach. Faithfulness to the Word of God is essential in, in spiritual growth, just on a personal level for, for Christians. And that makes sense from what we saw in Acts, right? The Word grows, the Word spreads, the Word multiplies. And the teaching for the modern church, I think, is pretty simple as we think about this theme in Acts. The Word of God is then central to any true growth of the church, any true growth of Christians, but also the church at large. So again, if we think about numbers, which I guess I'm thinking about numbers a lot, but if we think about numbers, churches can grow big numerically, but if, the, if it's not centered or grounded in the Word, then there's actually not any true growth. There's not any spiritual growth. And this idea of being a Word-centered church also helps the church guard against the, Schreiner points this out, which I think is helpful, of the unfortunate practice of, of churches being tempted to be centered on a certain personality or a certain charismatic teacher or preacher. This is also a futile enterprise. Because just think, the apostles all died. Every great preacher that has ever existed or still lives, they're going to die or have died. Blake's going to die. I'm going to die. All the elders are going to die. But the Word of God will live forever. The Word is the thing. The Word is the power. It's not the, the human agent. 
So it, it's foolish, it's futile to lift up um, certain gifted preachers and center our lives around certain preachers, although we can be thankful for, we should honor our, our elders and preachers. Um, I'm not saying that, but kind of this cult of celebrity that seems to be pretty uh, widespread in, in the American church context. I think we can be guarded against it as we think about the theology of the Word of God and in Acts. And the focus shouldn't be on the, the preacher or teacher because the true growth, the, the true renewal of the church is found through the Word, the Word of God. So, big idea here, renewal. Growth begins with the retrieval of the centrality of the Word of God for the church. All right, I'm going to skip salvation. I'm going to go to the sixth theme, which is the establishment of the church in Acts. So what we see in in Acts regarding the church is that God gathers his people into community, what is called the new covenant community. So what we can say in our theology of Acts is that Christ was sent into the world not only to save individuals, but save those individuals into something, to save those individuals into a community, into what, what we call the church. The point for our purposes is that just to say that any renewal in the church today, any growth in the church today, must have a strong emphasis and priority on the church, just like it was in, in the time of Acts. Right? What we saw in Acts is the church is where God meets with his people in a unique way. I would say through the ordinary means that he's given um, of, of, of worship, of the reading of the scriptures, of the preaching of the word, of the celebrating and practice of the ordinances. The church is where Christians gather together as a community. It's where they're, they're fed spiritually we see this all over the place in the Acts of the, the, the church is where believers' physical needs are met radically, right? right? Financial needs, um, uh, hospitality needs. So it's a, it's a transformative community as we look at the church in Acts. Again, it's the primary place of God's kingdom growth in this age as number or as as the growth occurs, as the gospel is being proclaimed and numbers are added through repentance and salvation um, into the church. It's central. It's obviously it's, the, the church is central to the narrative of Acts. But one thing I think we can emphasize as being important in regarding the church that has implications for us today is that what we see in Acts as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to, to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth is that the church creates a diverse community. Well, the, I would just say the church is a diverse community by virtue of what it is. So not diverse in any modern identity polity, politics sense or diversity for diversity's sake, which is very popular today. That's not what I'm saying we should be after. But what is true in Acts is now that the people of God can and will include all types of people. There are no dividing walls of hostility between people groups, whether that's ethnic or social class 
um, or gender. That, that, that doesn't exist in God's economy. That, that, that type of hostility does not exist in the church, in the New Covenant community. And I think as we read Acts, I think we're to read that, that diversity and the inclusion of the Gentiles as, as something beautiful that occurs. It's a, there's a beauty in that diversity and what God is creating in this new community, in this new covenant community. And I think it should inform churches in all ages to be places of open doors. Right? We can't control who comes in our doors. We can't control the, the ethnicity of a group or the social class of the neighborhood. But we can control our posture towards our neighbors and to other Christians to be hospitable to be open-armed, to be open-handed, um, to strive to be hospitable, and not just to the people that, that make us comfortable, but even the, those people over there, um, whoever over there is for you. The, the last theme we thought through was witnessing, witnessing of Christ and His work. And what we saw was pretty simple. Witnessing is not an option for the church. It's not one thing that we can just put on the back burner of the church life and, and do when we want to do it. When we have time for sharing the gospel, we'll do it then. So witnessing the related areas that I argued are our missions and evangelism. Those things are essential in the Christian life, essential in, in the church. Acts is probably, maybe not most fundamental, but it is a missionary text. It's a missionary text. God enacts his mission, and he furthers his mission through the witness and ministry of his people. His mission to, to save a group of people for himself, to save his elect. This, again, has obvious implications for our everyday life. Evangelism, then, is not something that is optional for us. Supporting missions as a congregation is, is something that should be a high priority for, for all churches. Because why? This is the means by which God has appointed to save more people and thus bring more people into the covenant community. This is how God has intended His gospel proclamation to occur in this age. That's the model of the Church of Acts for us. Of course, it's going to look different in different contexts and different cultures and different uh, political structures. Um, but the general principle is, by looking at Acts, we know that witnessing is something that is a priority, that needs to be a priority for the church. So, in closing, hopefully all of this just gives us a little taste. I mean, you could mine these, these application points, you can mine these theolog theological truths a lot more than we did in this study, and that's what I encourage you to do. This is an introduction into the theology of Acts, meaning you can go as far as you want to by just perusing, by, by mining the depths of, of the content of Acts, the theological truths that we see in Acts, and then praying in, in concert with the Spirit to, to um, apply these truths to our lives. But hopefully we, we got a taste of the, the, the richness of Acts, um, a, a greater understanding of how Acts is structured, of the larger theological theme of Acts. Maybe the most important thing I wanted out of the study is to see how Acts fits into the, to the greater narrative of the whole scriptures, of the whole Bible. Um, so hopefully that, that, that is occurring. 
Any questions or comments? I had some other stuff, but it's, I kind of summed it up there. Any last questions, comments? Not individuals, that's right, good, good correction. Individualism, right? What Christianity is fundamentally a communal identity. We are saved into a group of people. That's the idea he's getting at. Um, that is, an, I think, a really important theme for our, our, our current times, which emphasizes individualism. It's good stuff. Anything else, Corbin? Yeah, I Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a good indication, a good diagnostic question, right, for all of us to be asking is, how is my uh, affections or, uh, yeah, empathies for the lost help grow that, right, because it is a sign of the Spirit's work. Mr. Versailles. I think that's exactly what we see in the narrative of Acts. That's what the apostles are doing, is exactly what you're explaining. Yeah, Yeah, that's helpful. I appreciate that. All right. Well, that's it for the study. Next week, the awesome Dennis Cates. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I'm being serious. The awesome Dennis Cates is going to lead us in a, in a new book study that I'll introduce next week but it's going to be on the doctrine of God's word. Um, All right, you guys are dismissed.